Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility. And, as I'm sure is obvious by now, I am absolutely of the opinion that democracy is broken in the Western world. We don't have a democracy. We have a kleptocracy that elevates the people who are most comfortable with leaning into the dark triad of their personalities, where psychopathy, narcissism and basic low cunning come together so that when they are elevated to positions of power, they can go about destroying all that we believe to be good and right and beautiful and tell themselves that what they're doing is wise. And given this, we need new ways of connecting, of communicating, of articulating our individual and collective needs and wants in ways that give us a sense of connection and agency and sufficiency, that bring out the best of us, not our own inner dark triads. We need new means of governance that work from the ground up and work for a thriving future for a human and more than human world. And this week's guest is absolutely immersed in the questions of how we transform our governance for the better. More than this, he is actually immersed in making it happen. Alex Lockwood was a senior lecturer in professional and creative writing, teaching journalism and writing fiction at Sunderland University. And he practiced what he taught. He is also the author of two novels, The Chernobyl Privileges and The Pig in Thin Air. And then more recently, he was actively involved in Animal Rebellion, an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion. And then that evolved into his becoming a founder member of the Humanity Project, which is an astonishing, life-affirming, inspiring collective movement for change. At the times when the news about climactic tipping points and the loss of sulfur particles and the impact of El Nino combines with the absolute horror of political destruction around the world, it is really good to remember that there are highly motivated, highly intelligent people getting together to create visions for change that will work and to which we will all look forward. This conversation rekindled my belief in a future that can work, and I really hope it does the same for you. So people of the podcast, please welcome Alex Lockwood of The Humanity Project. Alex, welcome to Accidental Gods. How are you and where are you this stormy morning? We had big wind last night. It was quite exciting. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Um, actually, I mean, I, I'm, I'm living on a boat at the moment. I'm not actually in the boat right now. I'm, I'm, in the, um, uh, I'm in a lovely podcast booth in the offices of an agency called Accept and Proceed in East London, who do some really good work. They're very much friends of the movement and, uh, and, and have offered us, you know, whatever help they can. So I'm in the lovely booth at the moment, but I was trying to sleep last night on a boat in, um, on the canal in Hackney and the, and the storm, you don't sleep really on a boat 
in the storm, you know. But that's okay. You have to learn to roll with it. Do you know what I mean? So I can imagine. So you're trifle sleepless this morning. We will endeavour not to scramble your brains too much. No, you're fine. The um, the storm. One of the wonderful things about actually living on a boat is you're so, you do you are much closer to the weather. You're much closer to the, yeah. the water you use, the energy you use, the weather around you, the nature around you, and you either accept it or you don't. So actually, when the storm comes in, you go right. It's going to be a fun night, and that's okay. Yeah, we're going to ride the storm. Yep. which is just very exciting. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so. We will put a link to accept and provide in the show notes so that people know who they are because they sound good people and they are supporters of the movement. Tell us about the Humanity Project movement, what it is, how you became involved in it, how and why, and where it's going. Over to you. Sure. I mean, the Humanity Project uh, is essentially about building bottom-up democracy. It's about sort of looking at the state of our politics and systems, saying they're not good enough, they're not working for ordinary people, they're broken, they need replacement. And you have, a, obviously, you have a whole spectrum of like sort of political reform and revolution from people who just want to see, you know, proportional representation as a first step to something. Um, there are people like the Sortition Foundation campaigning for a House of Citizens to replace the House of Lords. And then you've got uh, and then you've got sort of people working in local communities, you know, from the bottom up, you know, real sort of local work in terms of having community conversations or things called assemblies where people can come together to de- debate what's important to them. And the Humanity Project was sort of, it came out of the... Um, the next phase of the environmental climate movement. So it was very much brought together by people such as, very importantly, Roger Hallam, founder of XR and Just Off Oil. Also Claire Farrell, um, one of the co-founders of XR. I was there because actually I was one of the co-founders of Animal Rebellion back in 2019. So I've been involved in sort of like the movement from sort of the animal agriculture side. Um, But also in the room uh, in our first meeting, which was the 1st of September, um, 2022, also in offices of friends of ours, friends of the movement, who people who were like, we really want to support you from, you know, the angles that we're coming from. There were there was Lee Jasper, who's the um, former uh, first black deputy mayor of London, who works in the black and Asian communities, and people from the Cost of Living Alliance and sort of their their, their communities. To so think about the the people with the mandates from their communities who are speaking to the need to build alliances and move further and do work together to essentially look at how we can replace the political system that we've got with something that's going to be an awful lot better. So that's sort of where it came from uh, and what its sort of mandate or ambition is. Okay, thank you. And even that, as a starting point, is huge because it does seem to me that still in the business as usual, outer mainstream world, they still maintain that we live in a democracy when quite clearly we don't. They maintain that it's working, that if people have been elected who are so obviously unfit to have any hand in any kind of governance, and the procedures for electing them are basically, can you get enough money behind you and can you kiss enough babies? And are you able to lie through your teeth? I am just beginning to read Rory Stewart's book on his experience in in Parliament, and and he quite clearly hated it. It was destroying his soul. And I I don't hold a particular light for his politics, but he's at least, uh, you know, an observable human being. And otherwise, we just have created a system for electing psychopaths who are then going to do what they can to enrich themselves and destroy everything else. You've spoken a little bit about how you gathered this coalition. So people who are already in the movement. Just on a logistical level, 
how did you get to know each other? Do you, do you have big WhatsApp groups or did you did you sit in circle around a fire somewhere or gather on a boat? How did you get to know these people and bring them all under one umbrella? Yeah, I'm hoping some of the people that I'm going to be talking about uh, will uh, will be okay with the fact of how honest I'm going to be here now about the story because actually what we've come to recognise and what we all recognised anyway is actually taking taking time to build relationships takes whatever time it takes, do you know what I mean? Change moves at the speed of trust was one of the foundational theories, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, absolutely. And and trust comes towards you very slowly, creeps towards you, and it runs away at a gallop, you know. Okay. So you have to build that trust really slowly. And so we, you know, so from those first meetings, what happened was like a, a narrative and framing and creative group went away and did some work and had five or six meetings where we just met and talked and so that was people like Claire Farrell, um, the theologian, uh, Commodity Gray, uh, some people who were involved in sort of Occupy, a guy called Jamie Kelsey, who was one of the Occupy movement co-founders, uh, Charlie Waterhouse, who did a lot of the design and narrative and framing for Extinction Rebellion, and myself, and I'm a creative writer. So we went away and had lots of conversations to do that, you know, and sat in a room together physically and came to know each other and came up with that. But what also happened, and I, and I do hope, I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying this, that um, you know, Roger Hallam, uh, co-founder of XR, founder of JSO and Insulate Britain, he moves at quite a fast pace. And what happened very soon after he convened this meeting was that actually he got he got sent to prison um, for right. four months. He got held on remand um, by, for simply giving a talk and being set up yeah. by a Daily Express journalist, you know, about sort of the need for this kind of revolution of spirit, of democracy, of love, of communion. And Hang on, did, had the Express deliberately framed him? Were they trying to get him set? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was a sting. It was a sting. You know, they worked with the police to say, look, we're going to go and film this and get it in the paper, you know, this is etc. Um, and they put him in remand for four months while they're going to figure out what's going on. On what basis? On the basis of conspiracy to cause public nuisance. Dear Lord. Exactly. I mean, this is the kind of state that we're living in, which is, which is evidence enough for most people that we need a different kind of political system. That this, I mean, we have political prisoners in this. I oh, know we're sorry, going off on a tangent already, but no, no, let's go, let's go, because I, I genuinely, I mean, the Express is not on my radar, and I hadn't realised that this was a thing. When did that? So this was back in September. This was October 22. last year. Yeah, October twenty-two. Yeah, but I mean, we have political prisoners in this country. You know, uh, Morgan and Marcus, who um, were JSO activists, who you know essentially shut down a road for forty-five minutes um, by right. climbing up on the gantries of the M twenty-five at the Dartford Tunnel sent to prison for two years. You know, they are political prisoners because what they're trying yeah. to do is raise awareness of the fact that our political system is not making the decisions it needs to make on yeah. the crises that we're facing. But anyway, but getting back to your question, Roger, Roger, we, I love him, bless him. He works at a very fast pace, but because he was in <laughs> remand for a few months, the rest of us bumbled along trying to build relationships and right. bring that alliance together. And actually, that's what we did. So Claire Farrell and myself, we convened a group of um, people, including democracy experts, other activists, um, Lee Jasper, who I've mentioned before. Um, and we essentially spent about four or five months getting to know each other. Well, uh, tell me a little bit more about democracy experts, because we've spoken in the past to Neil Lawson of Compass and you know, his idea is that PR is the very thin end of a wedge that creates change. And he's working within the system as it exists. And in my reading around this, there seem to be two classes of people. There are people who think the existing system can be reformed. And, and I have to say, I'm deeply sceptical of that, but 
let them have a try. It's the system we've got. And there are the ones who are imagining alternative systems. I am assuming you're going for the second lot. How did you find them? And can you tell us a little bit about the nature of the conversation around that? How radical are we being? How much are we saying just get rid of the existing system and start afresh? And how much are we saying we could take the existing system and we could reconfigure it in a way that might actually work? Yeah. I, and I think we've definitely got to a point where it's a both and conversation. So okay. we, we absolutely need to work with organisations like Operation Black Folk who are trying to re-enfranchise a million black people to get onto the electoral register in terms of voting in this election. And we also need to hold in our hands, in our minds, the um, the view of a, a new political system. So we're already at another fork. So definitely I want to look at the second point, but let's have a look at re-enfranchising the black vote. Because the existing government has, has admitted, just Jacob Rees-Mogg said, they were trying to commit voter suppression. And they might succeed. It seems to me a huge number of people are now not allowed to vote because you have to turn up with your ID. And it may be that they managed to disenfranchise a lot of elderly people who would otherwise vote Tory, which would be a bit of an ungoal. But what they're trying to do is stop anyone who's not old and white from voting. How are you managing? How well are the groups that are trying to re-enfranchise Black people, obviously. Presumably there are people trying to re-enfranchise young people. Everybody that's being excluded. How are, in, in what way are they working and how is it succeeding? Yeah, honestly, that isn't central to the Humanity Project team. Okay, fine. All right. It's like, so what you've got there is like Lee Jasper, who is one of the core members of the Humanity Project group, is also embedded with Operation Black Vote, an organisation black socks. It's not something that actually I know a huge amount about about this. I'll inquire elsewhere. Let's go then. You were saying it's a both and. We've got the people trying to make the existing system work. And then let's look at what else you were looking at. So we have worked with people who are not, say, core members, not core team members of the uh, humanity project itself. But there are some incredibly wonderful people that we've built relationships with again. People like Claire Mellier and Rich Wilson of the organisation Isway, and they were both involved as co-founders and co-organisers of the Global Assembly, which was a snapshot of the human family that was launched and run alongside COP26 to have that proper snapshot demographically representative of, of humanity feeding into that process. And we've also worked with someone called uh, Professor Graham Smith, who's at, I think, Westminster University, who's written a lot of books around uh, this subject matter. And they are very much at the point, you know, I wouldn't want to speak for them, but paraphrase, but what they've shared with us and do share publicly is this sense that, you know, the, the co-option of these processes of bringing people together by the current elite powers because they recognise it's a threat. And so if they don't co-opt it, they're going to be threatened by it and they may lose their power. We've recognised that we therefore need to work differently with other people, other communities. The democracy group, the democracy organisations probably, I think, are recognising now that they need to work with people who can build movements. So Rich Wilson actually wrote an article that came out just before the Democracy Network uh, event in London earlier in January saying, how do we build a mass movement for democratic change? And actually that democratic change isn't just about the reform. It is about the, the revolution is a scary word for a lot of people. Right? To be honest, it's quite a scary word for me in terms of being a person who is involved in framing and communicating and narrating that to a more wide stream audience who might get very turned off by that. Yeah. Essentially what we're trying to do is a transformation. 
of the political system that works for ordinary people. And yes. the democracy people we've been working with recognise that. And I don't think they all do. I don't think everyone does. You know, a lot of people do think we can change the system from the inside. We can we can reform it, proportional representation, all of these things. But what we're looking at is it's that's not how the world has been working for the last 300 years. We have to overturn. And actually, what we really have to overturn is a system that's probably been working for 10,000 years around exactly. patriarchy and, you know, uh, an autarky, yeah. Okay, let's go for the narratives of transformation because you're right. Rebellion, any of the words around that feel, they feel to me inherently violent and I am absolutely deeply of the opinion that we have to work peacefully because violence just takes us in another loop around the existing system. Whoever comes out on top of a violent interaction is not necessarily the people that you want to be transforming a world that is currently in polycrisis. They're unlikely to have the vision and the scope to create the generative conscious evolution that we need to move forward. So that would be my baseline, and I'm guessing potentially that it would be your baseline. But if not, please say so. So let's, how are you as a writer? I'm really interested in the concept of you as a creative writer. I've just finished, I'm in the proofs of a book that's coming out in May, where we're exactly looking at how do we build a mass movement. And I have an idea in the book, a particular event sparks it and and it becomes a global movement because we have the capacity now to create global movements overnight almost. If we can create a sense of engagement and possibility and direction, then we can spread that around the world very, very fast. It's creating the sense of engagement and, and direction is the issue. So talk me through transformation and how the narrative of transformation works in in your world. Yeah. And so two clarifying things for, for the conversation. Um, certainly, I agree and everyone I work with would agree with you that actually violence cannot and is not a way to transform. All of the movements I've worked in and all of the people I work with are stringently nonviolent and we practice nonviolence, but nonviolence is a passivity. Nonviolence can be very assertive, powerful, means of change and yes. uh, that's very much embedded in sort of humanity project in the way that it was embedded in extinction rebellion and animal rebellion and still is so we are certainly coming from that point of view of non-violence and actually my favorite non-violent quote isn't martin luther king or gandhi it's john lennon who said you know the only thing the enemy can't deal with are humor and non-violence everything right. else they know how to deal with but that they don't so which is actually part of the reason why the novel that i've just finished um, you know, that's hopefully going into sort of publication soon, is a is a is a comedy. It's it's British right. climate psychedelic fiction written in a very comic way. Ooh, what is it coming out, Alex? I don't know. I'm waiting for publisher to come back and talk about Yes, that. right. Okay. Well, when it does, you're back on here, and we're talking about your novel. Great, for sure. So that's the first clarification. The second clarification, I think, is about just going back to the humanity project is that one of the methods that is absolutely at the heart of it in terms of transformation is, is that it's culturally led. It's a political project, but it's culturally led because unless we speak to and inform and get, you know, essentially the, the majority of the people in this country to look at what we're doing and go, oh, yeah, that's safe and it's reliable and it's better than what we've got, then they won't vote for it. They won't support it. So it has to be a conversation that they're going to have down the pub 
It's got to be something that their sports stars get behind. It's got to be, you know, their sport heroes. And it's got to be something that we can communicate through TV and comedy and radio. So so as part of the transformation narrative, it's not just like the, the language, but it's got to be also the form. And that format is across popular culture. So that's part of why we're launching the a lot of this is that the cultural wave is launching um, itself at an event at Manchester Reviva Studios on the 22nd of February called like Hard Art Presents the Fate of Britain because it is like the fate is in our hands but we're trying to communicate that language through art and film and culture and music and comedy and just getting together for a, a conversation and a chat. So that is a large part of it. And and so just to come back to your the third question about sort of language of revolution or transformation, myself as a, as a creative writer... Um, and using those skills, not only to write novels or books, but also to do public engagement work, as you do with this podcast, for example. My, my, my work and the work that I've been doing with other people in this movement has been about how, what are the big frames of language that people can sort of really identify with to understand that, you know, we need to do things differently. So we have these big, you know, themes of care and freedom to replace production and consumption. And that's, that's the work that comes from David Graeber, very much informed by David yes. Graeber's thinking. And we really have translated that into like this overarching frame for us about the work that we need to do and a reevaluation of what it means to work and why you work. You, you work for the love of your community. You work for your family. You work for nature. You do, you do, you know, you do this other stuff that isn't about production and consumption. Right. It's about community building and, and lovemaking, really. It's about sort of, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of non, non-sexual way, in a creative way, in an eros, eros way, you know, the true meaning of eros, getting back to those ideas of how we love one another and how therefore we work with for one another to create community. That's really at the heart of what we're trying to do, communicate. Yes, and get off our dopamine addictions and back into our serotonin mesh that is throughout 300,000 years of human evolution has been what the glue that bound us together. And then we abandon it because Twitter gives us another little yeah. microliter of dopamine. Uh, Nate Higgins talks about the current culture converting millions of barrels of oil into microliters of dopamine per day. And that's what it's doing. And it's, this is not useful. This is what's destroying right. us. So in this narrative of transformation and taking David Graeber's concepts of care and freedom, first of all, I would like a link to the event that's happening in Manchester because we need to tell everybody about that. What does it look like in an ideal world? If the event at Manchester were to spark a mass movement, I accept that it that's asking a lot. Where do we go from there? What's the practical logistics of this? The mass, yeah. So this, this is why the the event in Manchester is very much sort of like led by this group called Hard Art that has formed around sort of uh, a group of artists, musicians, faith leaders, activists, economists, etc., who've been meeting again and building the relationships for over fifteen months to get to the point where actually we're, we're, we're glued together by in the mesh and the serotonin mesh as you talk about it to, to stand together and have each other's backs to put our heads above the parapet and say, as artists, as musicians, as writers, as comedians, we're here for this. So that's really, really important. But if it's just a four day festival and it goes nowhere, then those, there's no point. It has to be linked into something. It has to be a stepping stone. And that, and for me, when we look back in seven years' time and go, oh my goodness, we've we've actually changed our three hundred year old political system, and now we have a constitution based on citizens' assemblies and you know people power, 
um, you know, people as not politicians, then Manchester would have been one of the stepping stones towards it. But what it steps towards and what it should be already enmeshed with and integrated with is the movement and the wave of people coming together through assembly at the local level. But that is always, always meshed into a national conversation. So, because for me, and I'm sure you know, you know, the, the, uh, the great silent spring from Rachel Carson in like the 1960s. But one of the things I did as an academic before I quit to do more of this movement work was study the most effective effective and affective templates of literary writing of books that gave us yeah gave us the template for what we need to do and what rachel carson does in this book and what we're trying to do in this work is bring together all of the private concerns and worries and conversations into a national public chorus for change that's the model but you can't have one without the other you can't have the national event without the local assembly people assembling and voicing their work, their, their concerns and worries and fears and hopes together. So that's, that's the model. Brilliant. And it's a beautiful and inspiring model. How do we convene these local assemblies? Let's suppose we're looking back from seven years hence and we've got them and we don't know the exact timescale through which they will arise. But, and they, obviously I hear you, they're arising from local level, but they're is presumably a degree of conceptual structure. Even a local assembly is a conceptual structure. And in the work that I've looked at with Eva Schoenfeld and Justin Kenrick, they distinguish between people's assemblies, which are self-selected, and citizens' assemblies, which are more randomly selected. And I've had a very interesting discussion with Grace Rahmani, who will be coming back on soon, I hope, as to whether it's wise to select citizens' assemblies on a pro rata basis of you know this percentage women, this percentage people of color, this because if you do that, you end up with individuals who feel they are representing a particular slice of society and that they have to speak for that slice and they're not just speaking in an emergent way in in the room from what moves them. But if you, I I was thinking remembering my childhood, and quite sectarian in retrospect little village in Scotland and you could throw a few stones and you would have got straight white orange men, really. And and I wouldn't want them speaking for me. I would have wanted a representative sample that let some women in and people who weren't sectarian, that would have been good. And how do we how do we move or what is the thinking at the moment of finding people who are willing and able to engage in this process and are going to bring the most generative potential to it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because actually someone who is, someone like myself who's actually come new to this and has learned an awful lot from great people in the last 15 months, you know, we've had these kinds of conversations as well. Right. And um, people within the Citizens' Assembly space particularly, and a Citizens' Assembly is that very um, specifically representative model. So if you've got 100 people representing the UK, it would be demographically um, representative. It would be 35% working class. It would be 51% women. It would be all of those things. And that is for, just for you know your listeners who may not know, you know, like the People's Assembly is self-selecting. It will be, hey, there's a there's a group right now in Hull called a Cooperation Hull who are... We're going to be speaking to them oh, very you, soon. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Yeah, because they're wonderful people. A lot of them come out of the climate movement, really courageous yeah. people. And they've gone there to set up this place 
um, this working hole. We, and they've done it postcode by postcode, which is holding a people's assembly in each of the postcodes. And it's like they've gone out on the streets, they've done door knocking, but the people who turn up will be self-selecting. That's okay, because it's the people who want to come along and have a say. Brilliant. They're likely to stay and because they chose to, to be there. And they're likely to do it again, yeah. And a citizens' assembly is the representative thing where it's very, you know, you have to, you know, you look at how it's democratically, democratic lottery, sortition, you know, it's done by chance to dissolve corruption. But, and I think that the important thing to say is like both of those systems, and particularly those two systems working together, are a hell of a lot better than what we've got now. Even if yes. they're not perfect, they're a hell of a yes. lot better. And yes. what the job is, I think, over the next seven years is to work out really good constitutional work around how you make the system as good as it can be. Um, because no system will be perfect. Because, as you said, there, there, are, there are criticisms from all angles about the current model of a citizens' assembly, uh, while there are so many wonderful things about it as well. And one of those exactly. criticisms, as you said, is like from, you know, that person might be representing their slice rather than what they say emergently or organically. And also, like, and, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but Lee Jasper from the black community has looked at it and has rewritten um, a proposal for how it might work better for black people. Because to be honest, if you put 15 black people in a room, 100 people, they probably, and the white people will still probably dominate because all of the centuries of, you know, privilege yeah. and expectation yeah. and rights. So, so when you speak to someone like Graham Smith from Westminster, you know, he's like, oh yeah, well you can have maybe a super majority of sort of black people to make it sort of more, you know, representative for what, what actually they need. Or you can have black, separate black assemblies feeding into an overall assembly and those, and those black, and the black people from those assemblies can come as representatives and witnesses and experts to speak to the representative sortition based assembly. So there is all of this work going on and thinking going on as these issues break out of the democratic space, you know, the democratic academic space and the space where it's, you know, they've happened into more everyday areas of life, you know, so, and as people like Lee, who has a mandate from the black community because he's been in it working for it for 50 years, then he has a right to say it doesn't really work for us as it is like that, but this is how it could work better for everyone. Yes. And that's the point, I think. And provided everybody comes in good faith and our intention is that it works better for everyone, <clears throat> human and more than human, then we will accept that we're going to make mistakes along the way. Absolutely, yeah. And, and exactly as you said, anything that we do along these lines within this container is better than the system we have just now, where the straight white blokes who were trained at Eton and did PPE at Oxford get to envision their crazy world and impose it on the rest mm. of us. Yeah. So it's it can't do any worse. No. How do you envision the distributed democracy of multiple citizens' assemblies or people's assemblies or whatever kind of assemblies we end up curating leading towards national governance? Or do you not see them leading towards national governance? I mean, some do, some don't. You know, so one of the one of the people that we've certainly had a lot of conversations with and has been a great advisor has been Peter McFadgen down in Frome, who wrote Flatpack Democracy. And again, I hope he, I hope he probably, you know, I'm sure this is in the public domain, you know, Peter was like, said to us, you know, he doesn't see it leading to national governments. It, it's a separate, you know, a, a parallel system of power that will be around when the old one fades away. I personally, having come to this, and again, I'm not a democracy expert, and actually there's great people I've learned from. So in terms of global, in terms of citizens' assemblies, 
There are people who are advocating it in for ways that would probably be able to answer some of these criticisms much better than I can because they've been involved for much longer. People like Jamie Kelsey, who was involved in the Global Assembly, the Occupy movement, who was in that room when we talked about the original sort of like narrative and framing. But I personally, and the Humanity Project, do see it leading to national governance. And to say that out loud is quite a risk, I think, because when the political elites hear, oh, there's people who are trying to take away our power, if they don't think we're very serious, they'll laugh us off and won't pay attention. But the minute they think we're serious, we're, we're in trouble. Yes. You know, they will come for us. And, yes. and that's what they're probably thinking about now. But we do think it's going to lead to national governments. Because, so for me, what we do is we build a we build an alternative system that's visible. You you great, get a great communications plan around it. It is made up of ordinary people. It is probably based on a sortition uh, assembly, you know, citizen assembly model for the credibility and all of the goods that it comes with. You know, um, even if there are you know criticisms and ways to critiques to work it and make it better. But then what you do over the next five years, the next election cycle, is that you have, in the same way that the alternative SAGE model looked at the SAGE group in terms of COVID, and they, and they went, well, actually, the government SAGE group is saying this, but we think this, and we're building up their credibility to analyse it in a different way. You have an alternative house, house of the people, whatever you might call it, looking at what the government, the new government, you know, after the general election does, and says, well, that new government is limited by what they think is politically practicable but we're not we just want the best for our families and this is actually what's best for our families and over the next five years everyone looks at that and goes oh yeah that that's better isn't it it's they're not corrupt they're not trying to on the take they're not trying to think about their second jobs they're not only thinking about what's politically possible they're thinking about what we need and they're coming out with common sense answers so you get to the next election and everyone goes well can't we have that instead of this and then all of a sudden you get people running as independents in the, the next general election in 2029 who go, this will be the last election that we ever stand in because as soon as we get voted in, we're going to dissolve this and replace it with this new, better thing that everyone's seen work for the last five years. And that's the really important thing. You've got to point to it and go, this is not a threat to your family. It's not a threat to your lifestyle. It's not a threat to your livelihood. It's not a threat to everything you hold dear. It's actually the better thing. And when people see that and feel unthreatened by it, they will go, oh, you know what, that is better. We can go for that. This is, I am, I am sitting here cheering silently because this is exactly what I've written in the book that's coming out in May. That, that forking of the government like they did in Taiwan and you, you let the old government do its thing and meanwhile you show how your way of electing, I have, I have a number of different rules for election. We let younger people have a vote than currently have. I didn't realise until I started doing the work for the book that in Scotland and Wales, 16 and up can vote. UK elections, 18 and up only. And there's no upper limit. I In, in the book, I, I slam in an upper limit. I think you get to a certain age, and I'm sorry, you got us here. Yeah. We don't need your opinion. And you're not going to be around. You know, my dad voted. I think actually he didn't, but he could have voted in Brexit and he died six weeks later. And we're in the mess we're in. Yeah. And and a lot, you know, the demographic churn is the demographic churn. Oh, and my, my family who, you know, my bless them, I love them very much, my auntie and uncle, my older family, you know, the, the means by which they absorb media narratives these days is only through TV and press, which are extremely right-wing compared to the other ways that younger people consume 
messaging and communication. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, David Runciman has obviously come out with quite a few good ideas, you know, like you should get the amount of votes for the um, average age. So when you're born, you get 84 votes. And when you're 84, you get one vote. Okay. You know, and after 84, you don't get a vote. Oh, does he say this? You see, I just made that up. I need to be reading this. Yeah, but it's brilliant. Or, or, and we should have six years, six-year-old votes, because actually Why not? some of them have better cognitive abilities than an 89-year-old. And I don't want to be ageist, but it's like, who needs to decide for the future? Uh, who's, who's going to get the impact, exactly? Yeah. It, who's going to live through the results of the decisions that you make because you read and absorb exactly the the mainstream media, which is which is there to support business as usual. It exists to maintain the the narrative that there is no alternative and that you are here to pay bills until you die, and that's what you're for. We have got a huge amount of time because you're going to be speaking to somebody much bigger than us no, in in no. the nat- national media quite soon. So let me have a think. Just for the book, I want to know where this goes to. But leaving that aside so that I'm not just publicly doing research for the book, how do you structure the links between citizens' assemblies? So let's assume Manchester then has lots and lots of smaller citizens' assemblies and they might be constructed to look at particular issues or they might just be bring your local issues and tell us what really matters. I have a theory that you send delegates up, but you always have oversight and total recall capacity so that if the delegate who moves up to the next layer of, so Manchester has uh, 500 citizens assemblies and then we create wards which of which there are five and 100 feed into five and then those five feed into one for Manchester who feeds into one for Northern England who feeds into one for England itself who feeds into one perhaps for the UK, but I'm assuming actually that Scotland and Wales get independence of governance quite fast under this system. At each level up, the people who elected this person as their speaker can deselect them and recall them because they're not representing the views of the assembly and they can replace them. And in the end, you get a national governance structure that is there not to make decisions, but to find the best way of implementing the decisions that are being made at local level. Is that a thing or have you got a better way? I mean, it is a thing. I know, like, certainly in Zapatista, Mexico, that the federal, the federated system was a large part of that. And actually, when it when it stopped being federated, when they stopped representing the local decisions, then there had to be a, a, a readjustment of that. And I obviously know in, in, in Rojava as well, there's these, it's very much a federated system as well. Um, I don't know the answer, actually. And I don't think as a humanity project, we've got an answer for that yet, because actually, maybe it's not for us to answer that question. Okay. Um, maybe it's for us to sort of help facilitate all of the local groups having their voice. And the most important thing, I think, is, you know, the most, um, at the moment, the measure of success is the people who come along to an assembly, do they want to do it again? And if they do want to do it again, that's the success because actually what you're building there is the community with the tools to make decisions for their agency over their local communities. And what what, what we're also obviously doing is building that saying, you know, we want to turn this into a public chorus for change because that's how you get heard. That's where decisions are made that affect us as as a nation or as a collection of nations. And what would that look like? And actually, the first gathering might be a people's assembly, not citizens' assembly, where it is federated from whoever's done it, and you build the community. And then that community comes together and works around sort of the ideas of what the constitution might look like. So I don't know if you know this, but um, a group of PhD students and, and academics, I think it's at Yale, could be Harvard. 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 It was Harvard. Yeah, the, Mars. the constitution for Mars. Mars. Yes. Yeah. And you look at that and go, 
mm, that's pretty good for our planet as well, isn't it? You know, so there's all of this work going on out there of like ways to do this. Uh, and I think we're at the beginning of that. And I think it would be wrong for, uh, I, I don't, you know, one of the things that I've really learned from working with, particularly Lee Jasper, is like we've got to get rid of this need for certainty that's a very, in, you know, very Western capitalist industrial methodology for objectifying everything and running businesses and business as usual. Let's get away from that. We don't know everything. It's okay not to know everything. And in fact, it's probably really important to admit that we don't know it. And then we can progress. Okay. That, uh, yes. And Andy Johar as well, he talks about the edge of interbecoming where you, you take yourself to the edge and you engage with whatever happens because the point is that we don't know. You're right. If we could predict it all, it's going to be the same system. Yeah. And as novelists, you know, as creative people, like you don't really know. I mean, even if you're a plotter, you don't really, a plotter rather than a pantser, you know, like that very that common thing in the novel writing world of like, do you plot it all before or do you go by the seat of your pants? You know, um, even then, the third draft of plotting it is going to look massively different from the first draft that you wrote a year ago, you know, so it's really important that it is a creative uh, and culturally led process that gets to us the point, because that is the more organic process, you know, political business, you know, like they're all, they all have their places, but if we're going to do this properly and actually change culture in this country, we have to be led by cultural change. And I think that's really, right. yeah. Right. Right. And actually that feels a really beautiful place to end. If we're going to change culture in this country, we have to go with cultural change and listen to it and explore it and see what actually matters to people. I love that. And it's probably not a bad time to stop. Is there anything else that you feel we haven't touched on that would be important and that you'd like to bring out at the moment? Only the, um, so the event that's happening in Manchester, 22nd to 25th of February, is a big festival of democracy. It's, a, it's an arts-led, culturally-led thing with loads of deliberation. So if anyone is around and this podcast goes out before then, brilliant. But And also for the Humanity Project, what's really important for the Humanity Project is for local people to get involved in running or, or you know, what we call POPs, local assemblies, um, to, you know, to, to work out what's important to people in their community. So if anyone wants to get involved with that, you just go to humanityproject.uk and get involved and talk about what you want to do in your community. Fantastic. And we will definitely put links in the show notes to the Manchester event because this will go out in time. And to the Humanity Project and also to various of the other things that you've mentioned on the way through. Alex, this was so inspiring. I am so grateful to you and the groups, the multiple people for what you're doing and for the hope that it brings because our politics is so broken. Everywhere in the Western world, politics is quite clearly broken. And if we can create exactly, as you said, this groundswell of change, this chorus from the ground up, it would be, it, it is the way that we might get through. So thank you. Thank you for coming here and thank you for what you're doing. And when your book is coming out, I would like to talk to you again about your book for sure. Thank you. That's great, Randa. Thank you. Thank you for your time and all the work you're doing and very much good luck with your book. And I'm very much, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thank you. I'll send you a copy. Well, there we go. Wasn't that inspiring? We have absolutely put links to the Humanity Project and the fate of Britain. I hadn't realised until I looked it up that that's F-E circumflex T-E of Britain, which is happening in Manchester, 22nd to 24th of February. I've put links to those in the show notes. Anything else that I think is useful, I will dig out and put there. 
And absolutely, if you have time in your life to create a Humanity Project pod in your local community to begin to work with what local governments looks and feels like, to begin to play as well as you can with the ideas of how we can come together differently so that we don't have to trudge through a world where everything else is telling us there is no alternative, where we can begin to build these alternatives in real time, please do this. I get emails periodically from people who listen to the podcast and want to know, how can I make this happen in my world? What can I do to have agency? What can I do to make a difference? This, this you can do. The link to the Humanity Project is there. Click on it, go and read the stuff, join in one of the calls, and then see who you can bring together in a pod. Anyone locally who listens to this, who could be interested. And if there's nobody in your local geography, then make use of the fact that we can connect together. Find people that you can link with, half a dozen, where you can create a non-local, a coordination citizens' assembly. It doesn't even have to be limited geographically to the islands of Britain. Spread it around the world. See what happens. This is the time for experimentation. This is the time for transformation. So go for it. And that apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, huge thanks to Cara C for the music at the head and foot, to Alan Lulls of Airtight Studios for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tillery for the website and the tech and all the conversations that keep us going forward, and, as always, to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else who thinks that our current political system is not quite working and wants to know how it could be different and we could all make something that would work better, then please do send them this link. Okay, people, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.